Well, good evening and welcome to you all. Uh, and welcome to the fifth lecture in the Life and Legacy of Mahatma Gandhi series featuring Professor Rajmohan Gandhi. My name is Muhammad Khalil and I'm the director of the Muslim Studies program and an associate professor of religious studies here at Michigan State. The title of this talk is The Caste Question, Gandhi and Ambedkar. Before introducing Professor Gandhi, I'd like to remind everyone that we are filming these lectures. So please kindly turn off your cell phones. Also, after the lecture, we will stop for a five-minute break before proceeding to Q&A. And now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Professor Rajmahan Gandhi. Professor Gandhi is a retired research professor from the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And that's actually where I met him back in 2007. I was at a faculty dinner, and somebody mentioned in passing that this is uh, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, and my jaw fell to the ground to pick it back up. Uh, and uh, I was um, thoroughly impressed by his character, his personality, and just uh, you know, an intellect, uh, and also somebody who's very humble. Um, a former member of the Upper House of the Indian Parliament, Professor Gandhi led the Indian delegation to the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva in 1990. Associated from 1956 with initiatives of change, formerly known as moral rearmament, Professor Gandhi has been engaged for half a century in efforts for trust building, reconciliation, and democracy, and in battles against corruption and inequalities. These efforts made in India and across the world have involved writing, speaking, public interventions, and organizing dialogues. In the 1960s and early 1970s, he played a leading role in establishing Asia Plateau, a 67-acre conference center of initiatives of change in the mountains of western India. I had the great pleasure of visiting it in February and found it to be absolutely stunning. During the 1975-77 to 77 emergency in India, he was active for democratic rights personally and through his weekly journal Himmet, published in Bombay from 1964 to 1981. He has worked consistently for India, Pakistan, and Hindu-Muslim reconciliation. Since 9-11, he has also tried to address the divide between the West and the world of Islam. He is the author of numerous works, including a biography of his grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi, entitled Mohandas, A True Story of a Man, His People, and an Empire, which received the prestigious biennial award excuse me, from the Indian History Congress in 2007. Please join me in welcoming Professor Rajmahan Gandhi. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Khalil, and thanks to everyone for being here yet again. Many of you are here for uh, the fifth time. I appreciate that. Um, so this is about the caste system in India, the caste question, the untouchability question, and Gandhi's approach to it, and also Gandhi's relationship with this remarkable figure, Bhimrao Ramji Ambedkar. Perhaps no one was personally closer to Gandhi than his English friend Charlie Andrews, whom he first met in South Africa in 1912. In August 1942, when Andrews was no more, Gandhi would say, there were no secrets between us. We exchanged our hearts every day. In the summer of 1933, Andrews urged Gandhi to concentrate on the removal of untouchability for the whole remainder of your life without turning to the right or the left. Recalling that Gandhi had again and again said that with untouchability, Indians were not fit for Swaraj, independence, Andrews asked his friend not to try to serve two masters. This is how Gandhi replied to Andrews, June 1933. Now for your important argument about untouchability. But there is this initial flaw about it. My life is one indivisible whole. It is not built after the compartmental system, satyagraha, untouchability, Hindu-Muslim unity, are indivisible parts of a whole. 
You will find at one time in my life an emphasis on one thing, at another time on another. But that is just like a pianist, now emphasizing one note and now another. But they're all related to one another. Adding that full and final removal of untouchability was utterly impossible without Swaraj, Gandhi signed off as Mohan, for Andrews, addressed by Gandhi as Charlie, was one of the very few who called Gandhi by his first name. Even as America fought first for independence and next for preserving its union before it could tackle slavery, India, Gandhi thought, needed independence for overcoming the evils of caste, arrogance, and, un and untouchability. But it had to be an independence that clearly recognized the evils. Gandhi sounded the untouchability, untouchability note early in his life, having boyhood clashes with his mother over playing with the untouchable youngster Uka, who came to the Gandhi's Rajkot home to clean it. In South Africa in the 1890s, Gandhi hired Indians of untouchable background in his law office, lodged some of them in his Durban home, and had that well-known fight in 1897 with his wife Kastur over her reluctance to cheerfully remove an untouchable lodger's chamber pot, a fight that also revealed, as Gandhi confessed, his domineering nature. At the end of 1908, when Indians arrested for defying South African laws were packed inside jails in groups, and a high caste Satyagrahi refused to sleep next to an untouchable, Gandhi expressed outrage. This was humiliating, Gandhi wrote in his journal Indian Opinion, adding, Thanks to these hypocritical distinctions of high and low, and the fear of subsequent, of subsequent caste tyranny, we have embraced falsehood. I wish that Indians who join this movement also resort to satyagraha against their caste and their family and against evil wherever they find it. This note against untouchability became even stronger when Gandhi returned to India in 1915 and started a center in Ahmedabad. Opposition to untouchability was one of the vows taken by those joining the center, which Gandhi called an ashram. When Dudabai Dafda, an untouchable, was admitted to the ashram with his wife, several objected, including a crucial colleague and relative, Maganlal Gandhi, and Maganlal's wife, Santok, as also Gandhi's own wife, Kastur. To a friend in southern India, Gandhi wrote that he had told Kasturba that if she was unable to live with the untouchable couple, she could leave me and we should part good friends. Kasturba yielded and stayed, but not Maganlal's wife. Santok fasted in opposition to the admission of Dudabhai and his wife. Gandhi fasted back. Santok and Maganlal packed their bags, said goodbye, and left. Later, they returned, having, as Gandhi would say, quote, washed their hearts clean of untouchability, unquote. When Dudamai and other members of the ashram tried to take water from a well next door, they were chased off by neighbors, and money ceased to come in. Gandhi was thinking of moving the ashram into an untouchable settlement when a young industrialist then in his 20s, Ambalal Sarabhai, quietly drove up, handed rupees 13,000 to Gandhi, and left. The tide soon turned, and Dudabhai and his wife, both showing forbearance, found increasing acceptance from neighbors, visitors, and ashramites. In February 1916, Gandhi said in Madras in South India, every affliction that we labor under in this sacred land is a fit and proper punishment for this great and indelible crime that we are committing. At a meeting in Godhra in Gujarat in November 1917, where, as a police agent noted, Hindus, Muslims, and untouchables were present, Gandhi declared that the higher castes would become fit for Swaraj only when they stopped thinking of the untouchables as low. When the non-cooperation movement for Swaraj was launched in 1920, the Congress, thanks to Gandhi's insistence, made the abolition of untouchability a central political goal. Orthodoxy hit back, picking in particular on a decision by Gujarat Vidyapit, a university in Ahmedabad that Gandhi helped create, not to take students from schools that excluded untouchables. A leading journal, Gujarati, 
alleged that Christians like Andrews had influenced Gandhi's stand against untouchability. And Gandhi was warned that the movement for Swaraj will end in smoke if untouchables were admitted to schools endorsed by his movement. Gandhi answered that he, that he would rather reject Swaraj than abandon the untouchables. But the threat to back the empire also came from some leaders of the untouchables who argued that salvation for their people was only possible through the British government. In April 1921, Gandhi asked untouchables in Ahmedabad to assert their self-respect. He urged them to cease to accept leavings from plates and to receive grain only, good sound grain, not rotten grain, and that too only if courteously offered. Gandhi added, I prayed today, if I have to be reborn, I should be born an untouchable so that I may share their sorrows, sufferings, and the affronts leveled at them in order that I may endeavor to free myself and them from that miserable condition. The I should be born an untouchable sentence revealed, among other things, Gandhi's realism. He knew that in the end, the untouchables would accept the lead only of one of their own. Still, he would try to win them and also shame the orthodox. In his journal, Gandhi wrote that cruelties to the untouchables constituted an outrage grosser than that in the Punjab against which we have been protesting. This was a reference to the Amritsar massacre. Repeating the thought at the Ahmedabad meeting, Gandhi added, what crimes for which we condemn the government as satanic have we not been guilty of towards our untouchable brethren? We make them crawl on their bellies. We have made them rub their noses on the ground. With eyes red with rage, we push them out of railway compartments. What more than this has British rule done? Despite these convictions, there were times between the mid-1920s and the mid-1930s when Gandhi professed to see virtue in an ideal caste system. He seems to have done this to retain caste Hindu backing, which he needed for Swaraj and also for Hindu-Muslim partnership. While claiming that an ideal caste system would produce a perfect division of labor and preserve skills from generation to generation, Gandhi took care to clarify in the same breath that such a system was purely imaginary and never existed. His fight against untouchability was intensified in the 1920s and 1930s, and his attack on the high and low notion was relentless. What was missing was an open denunciation of the caste system as such. Moreover, Gandhi's defense of this system was joined by occasional disapproval in line with traditional practice of intercaste dining and intercaste marriages. While pleasing caste Hindus, Gandhi's stance alienated radical foes of caste, of whom the Dalit leader, Bhimrao Ambedkar, a brilliant scholar and lawyer, armed with advanced degrees from the US and India, was the most resolute. Eight years after Gandhi's death, Nehru would tell a European journalist, Tibor Mende, I asked Gandhi repeatedly, why don't you hit out at the caste system directly? He said, uh, Nehru reported, I'm undermining it completely by tackling untouchability. Gandhi's genius, uh, Nehru went on, lay in finding the weakest point of the enemy, the breaking of his front. Realizing that he would unite pro-Orthodox ranks if he started with an attack on caste, Gandhi chose to zero in on an evil none could defend. The strategy worked, but his seeming defense of caste did not sit well with reformers. For some years in the 1920s, Ambedkar was an admirer of Gandhi. In 1927, when Ambedkar led a satyagraha, as he called it, for Dalit access to a water tank in Mahad in western Maharashtra, Gandhi's photograph was displayed at the satyagrahi's rally. When they surged forward to the tank and drank from its water, they were attacked with sticks and clubs by infuriated bands of the orthodox. Ambedkar, at this Mahad Satyagraha, wisely asked his people not to hit back. 
Gandhi justified the Satyagraha in his journal. He praised the Dalits' exemplary self-restraint, as he called it, under Ambedkar's leadership. He also urged every Hindu opposed to untouchability to publicly defend the courageous Dalits of Mahad, even, said Gandhi, at the risk of getting his head broken. For a while, Gandhi thought that Ambedkar was a radical Brahmin fighting untouchability. But he realized his mistake in August 1931, when the two met for the first time. Within weeks of this encounter, the two took part in a London conference called by the empire to discuss India's political and constitutional future. Before leaving India for this conference, Gandhi frankly admitted that Swaraj could make Dalits worse off because it would give the upper castes political power on top of their social and economic strength. If, said Gandhi in Ahmedabad, we come into power with the stain of untouchability unaffected, I am positive that the untouchables would be worse off under that Swaraj than they are now for the simple reason that our weaknesses and our failings would then be buttressed by the accession of power. Since the Swaraj goal could not be abandoned, the solution, as Gandhi saw it, was to attack untouchability while asking for Swaraj. A few months earlier, in 1931, the Congress had met in Karachi with Vallabhai Patel in the chair and passed a fundamental rights resolution. Drafted mainly by Gandhi and Nehru, this resolution pledged that a free India would abolish untouchability and provide equal rights to all, irrespective of caste, sex, or creed. Nineteen years later, the pledge was enshrined in Free India's constitution, of which Ambedkar would be the principal architect. At the 1931 London conference, however, a 62-year-old Gandhi and a 40-year-old Ambedkar clashed over separate versus joint electorates. If the empire could provide separate electorates and reserved seats for Muslims, Sikhs, and India's Europeans, why not reserved Dalit seats and a separate Dalit electorate, ensuring that only Dalits voted for or against Dalit candidates? Gandhi answered this argument with a counter-question. Sikhs, he said, may remain as such in perpetuity. So may Muslims, so may Europeans. Will untouchables remain untouchables in perpetuity? Indian reformers, Gandhi added, were fighting untouchability. Separating Dalits from the rest of the Hindu society would hurt the slender bridge of overdue justice that was being created. There was another reality to which Gandhi confessed in a meeting at Friend's House, the Quaker Center in Houston. The untouchables, said Gandhi, are in the hands of superior classes. These superior classes can suppress them completely and wreak vengeance upon the untouchables who are at their mercy. I may be opening out my shame to you, but how can I invite utter destruction for them? We should mark that in London, Gandhi lived amidst the poorer off in Kingsley Hall in the East End of London as the guest of the Quaker activist Muriel Lester. Gandhi acknowledged Ambedkar's commitment and abilities, but he also claimed that if it came to a choice, India's Dalits would pick him rather than Ambedkar as their representative, a claim truer in 1931 than in 2016. Ambedkar's demand for a separate electorate was backed in London by many delegates, most of them nominated by the empire. Before the conference ended, London signaled that a separate electorate for Dalits was likely. Shocking many, Gandhi declared before leaving London that he might fast unto death against it. The animated dispute over separate electorates was proceeding alongside the fight for Swaraj. Because of that fight, the empire arrested Gandhi in January 1932, within days of his return to India, and sent him to Yaravada jail in Pune, or Pune, as it's now called. There he was in September 1932, when the empire announced from London a separate Dalit electorate, whereupon from prison, Gandhi announced a fast of indefinite duration. Directed at the separate Dalit electorate, the fast also prodded the caste Hindu conscience 
and produced a quick result. Meeting in Bombay, India's most influential caste Hindu leaders resolved, in line with the Karachi Resolution of 1931, that one of the earliest acts of the Swaraj Parliament would be to assure to the untouchables equal access to public wells, public schools, public roads, and all other public institutions. There were other reactions to Gandhi's fast. Hindu temples closed for centuries to the untouchables opened their doors. Brahmins invited Dalits to meals in their homes. The empire on its part opened the doors of Yaravda prison and Ambedkar and other Dalit leaders went inside to confer with Gandhi. A settlement was reached. Under it, Gandhi not only agreed to reserved seats or quotas for Dalits in legislatures, he also said that Dalits should have seats in proportion to their population. In the empire's scheme, only half of that number had been provided. On his part, Ambedkar and his colleagues agreed to give up the demand for a separate electorate. On 24 September 1932, what became known as the Pune Pact was signed. A cable went to London, where His Majesty's government accepted the joint proposal sent from one of its imperial prisons, and Gandhi broke his fast. Seventeen years later, the essence of this pact was incorporated into Free India's constitution. Every subsequent Indian election in the 82 years since that pact, whether nationwide or in a state, town or village, has been conducted on the basis of that pact, with reserved seats for Dalits, but without a separate electorate. Gandhi claimed during the fast that an increasing army of reformers would, resi would resist the social, civic, and political persecution of the depressed classes, as they were called. The issue, he said, was of transcendental value, far surpassing Swaraj or independence, Gandhi added. Expressing what he called his Hindu gratitude to Dr. Ambedkar, and also to Rao Bahadur Srinivasan and Rao Bahadur MC Raja, Dalit leaders who had conferred with him in Yaravada, Gandhi added, they could have taken up an uncompromising and defiant attitude by way of punishment to the so-called caste Hindus for the sins of generations. If they had done so, I at least could not have resented their attitude. And my death would have been but a trifling price exacted for the tortures that the outcasts of Hinduism have been going through for unknown generations. But they chose a nobler path and have thus shown that they have followed the precept of forgiveness enjoined by all religions. Let me hope, Gandhi added, that the caste Hindus will prove themselves worthy of this forgiveness. To caste Hindus, Gandhi conveyed a warning. The political part of the settlement occupies but a small space in the vast field of reform that has to be tackled by caste Hindus during the coming days. The complete removal of social and religious disabilities under which a large part of the Hindu population has been groaning. I should be guilty of a breach of trust, Gandhi added, if I did not warn fellow reformers and caste Hindus in general that the breaking of the fast carried with it a sure promise of a resumption of it if this reform is not relentlessly pursued and achieved within a measurable period. Wondering whether caste Hindu change was going to be deep enough or wide enough or lasting, Gandhi wrote to Andrews on 30 September 1932. I did expect a mighty response from the Orthodox, but I was unprepared for the sudden manifestation that took place. But I shall not be deceived. It remains to be seen whether the temples remain open and the various other things done persist. Now, was reform relentlessly pursued and achieved within the measurable period? Much was done, but much more remained undone. Did Gandhi then start another fast unto death? He did not, though in May 1933, he again fasted for 21 days over untouchability. Pointing to some of modern India's ugly realities, including over caste, some have asserted that Gandhi was a hypocrite and a secret foe of the Dalits. The record, however, shows that his fight against heavy odds was quite remarkable, even if success 
was only partial. Shortly after signing the pact, Ambedkar said that he had been, quote, surprised, immensely surprised, to find so much in common between Gandhi and himself. If you devoted yourself entirely to the welfare of the depressed classes, said Ambedkar to Gandhi, you would become our hero. This, as we know, is what Andrews too said. But Gandhi's fingers would not stay away from the piano keys of Swaraj and Hindu-Muslim friendship. In a book that Ambedkar wrote in 1945, 13 years after the fast and after the Pune Pact, he sharply attacked the fast that had led to the pact, but he did not attack the terms of the pact, which he claimed as a victory. He wrote, when the fast failed and Mr. Gandhi was obliged to sign a pact called the Pune Pact, which conceded the political demands of the untouchables, he took his revenge by letting the Congress employ foul electioneering tactics to make their political rights of no avail. In this 1945 text, Ambedkar also said that while the untouchables were sad because of the concessions he had made, the caste Hindus were definitely, very definitely disliked the pact, although they had not the courage to reject it. We should mark the empire's peculiar relationship with Gandhi in the, in the 1930s. It not only allowed the fasting prisoner to change a major policy, it also allowed him to edit from jail a journal called Harijan, through which Gandhi hoped to continue his campaign against untouchability. In the new journal's issue of 11 February 1933, Gandhi explained the choice of the word Hari Jan. He recalled that an untouchable reader of his earlier journal, Navajivan, which the Raj had banned, had suggested using the expression Harijan, meaning God's individual, for an untouchable. Narsi Mehta, the author of Vaishnava Jana, that song that we have spoken about, had employed the phrase centuries earlier. So this person writing to Gandhi added, he added that Narsimeta had used it, so why don't you use it? The word Harijan. Today, almost everyone in India uses the term Dalit, which means downtrodden. Until about the 1980s, for about a half a century that is, Harijan was a widely used term. But strong opposition by Ambedkar's followers and a number of Dalit leaders pushed it almost completely out of circulation. Condescension and worse were read into it into the word Harijan. Yet even today, a few, including Dalits, employ that word. When the journal Harijan started, Gandhi wrote that God was above all the protector of the helpless. Since none were more helpless than the untouchables, the word Harijan for them seemed appropriate to him. When caste Hindus realized their folly and changed, they too, said Gandhi, would be entitled to be called Harijans. Asking caste Hindus to, to recognize that many among them, whatever they might claim, despised Dalits, Gandhi wrote, if to relegate a body of people to distant locations, to regard their touch, approach, or sight as pollution, to throw at them the leavings of one's food, to deny them the use of public roads and institutions, even the use of public temples, is not to despise them. I do not know what the word despised means. Gandhi's portrayal of Dalit hardship presented in November 1932 was stark. Socially, he said, they are lepers. Economically, they are worse than slaves. Religiously, they are denied entrance to places we miscall houses of God. They are denied the use on the same terms as the caste men of public roads, public hospitals, public wells, public taps, public parks, and the like. And in some cases, their approach within a measured distance is a social crime, or their very sight is an offense. They are relegated for their residence to the worst quarters of cities or villages, where they practically get no social services. Caste Hindu lawyers and doctors will not serve them. Brahmins will not officiate at their religious functions. The wonder is that they are at all able to eke out an existence, or that they still remain within the Hindu fold. They are too downtrodden, Gandhi continued, to rise in revolt 
against their suppressors. Orthodox hostility to Gandhi's stand produced two attempts on his life in 1934, one in Jasidi in Bihar and the other in Pune. Certain, however, that orthodoxy was losing ground, Gandhi wrote to Nehru in February 1933. The fight against Sanatanis, the orthodox, is becoming more and more interesting, if also increasingly difficult. The abuses they're hurling at me are wonderfully refreshing. I'm all that is bad and corrupt on this earth. It is the death dance of the moth round a lamp. Though he had signed the Pune Pact, in the following year, Ambedkar turned down Gandhi's request for a message for the journal Harijan. Instead, he sent a statement where he said that nothing short of the destruction of the caste system would finish untouchability. Outcasts existed, said Ambedkar, because they were castes. He also signaled their readiness to leave the Hindu fold, responded Gandhi. If this doctrine of utmost superiority and utmost inferiority, descending from father to son for eternity, is an integral part of Hinduism, then I no more want to belong to it than does Dr. Ambedkar. But there is no superiority or inferiority in the Hinduism of my conception. I invite Dr. Ambedkar, continued Gandhi, to shed his bitterness and anger and try to learn the beauties of the faith of his forefathers. Let him not curse Hinduism without making an unbiased study of it. And if it fails to sustain him in his hour of need, by all means, let him forsake it. When a huge earthquake destroyed towns and villages in North Bihar in January 1934, Gandhi suggested that the event was a divine chastisement for the great sin committed by the so-called higher castes against Harijans from century to century. Criticizing Gandhi's superstitious argument, his friend Tagore, the Nobel laureate, commented that Gandhi's logic far better suits the psychology of his orthodox opponents than his own and that the orthodox were likely to hold Gandhi and his followers responsible for the visitation of divine anger. But Gandhi was not deterred. Again, using the earthquake to drive home the inequality of untouchability, he said on 24 January 1934, whilst we have yet breathing time, let us get rid of the distinctions of high and low, purify our hearts, and be ready to face our maker when an earthquake or some natural calamity or death in the ordinary course overtakes us. Large numbers of caste Hindus were part of the immense crowds Gandhi drew while journeying across India to raise funds for the anti-untouchability effort. There were moments when Gandhi thought, in his words of March 1934, that untouchability has become weak and limp. But in India's villages, Attacks on Dalits did not cease. In October 1935, shortly after reports of atrocities in Ahmedabad district's Kavita village, Gandhi, uh, sorry, Ambedkar announced that though born a Hindu, he did not intend to die one. Gandhi offered an immediate comment. I can understand the anger of a high-souled and highly educated person like Dr. Ambedkar over the atrocities as were committed in Kavita and other villages. But religion is not like a house or a cloak which can be changed at will. However, Gandhi now decided to criticize the caste system directly. On 16 November 1935, he said of the caste system, the sooner public opinion abolishes it, the better. The article in his journal Harijan in which he wrote this was headlined in large type, caste has to go. The next year, 1936, Ambedkar published his famous lecture, Annihilation of Caste, after a reformist group at, in Lahore, reading an, an advanced text of the lecture they had invited Ambedkar to deliver, canceled the event. Reviewing Annihilation of Caste, Gandhi criticized the cancellation, reiterated his rejection of caste, which he deemed harmful both to spiritual and national growth, 
and he now did what he had thus far hesitated to do. He publicly affirmed his acceptance of interdining and intermarriage. Claiming, however, that the Indian term varna was different from caste, Gandhi tried to defend varna by saying that the hereditary occupations for which varna stood could ensure harmony and economy. At the same time, Gandhi clarified that restoring a pure varna system was like an ant trying to lift a bag of sugar or like Dame Parkington pushing back the Atlantic with a mop. He was admitting that the Varna system was a fantasy. Ambedkar easily picked holes in Gandhi's theoretical defense of Varna, which was a sop that helped preserve Gandhi's caste Hindu constituency. At the end of March 1938, while he, Kasturba, Mahadev, Gandhi's secretary, and others were in Orissa, Gandhi learned that Kasturba, Mahadev's wife Durga, and a woman relative of Durga's had gone inside Puri's famed Jagannath temple from which Dalits were barred. Gandhi was shocked and also troubled, for the whole of Puri, the city, was evidently talking about Kasturba's visit inside the temple. The station master asked a member of Gandhi's team, did Kasturba really enter the temple? Chastised by Gandhi, the women wept. Kasturba said she was wrong to have gone inside. Gandhi's strongest rebuke was reserved for Desai. He should have advised the women not to go, not to go in, Gandhi told him. Mahadev's 15-year-old son, Narayan, was praised by Gandhi. Though accompanying the women, Narayan had refused to go inside. The rebukes and the praise were recorded in Gandhi's journal. Between 1937 and 1939, Congress governments in the provinces, each of them containing a Dalit minister, strove to improve the Dalit's situation. In Madras presidency, for instance, a new law made discrimination against Dalits in jobs, wells, public conveniences, roads, schools, and colleges an offense. Another law enabled Dalits to enter several of the South's great temples for the first time in centuries. In elections to these provincial legislatures in early 1937, as also in a central legislature election held in 1934, almost all Dalit seats were won by Dalit members of the Congress. In Bombay presidency, to which Ambedkar belonged, his party won a fair number of seats, but everywhere else, the hold of the Congress over Dalit seats was overwhelming. When in December 1939, the Congress ministries resigned because of the empire's refusal to promise India's independence at the end of the war, Ambedkar joined Jinnah in celebrating the departure of the Congress ministries. In 1941, after the League's Lahore Resolution, Ambedkar published a significant text, Thoughts on Pakistan, in which he seemed to, to see reason in the Pakistan demand. Then, when the Congress went into rebellion and launched Quit India, the empire inducted Ambedkar into the Viceroy's Executive Council. Ambedkar became member for labor in the Executive Council of an empire that had put Gandhi, Nehru, Patel, Azad, and thousands of popular figures in prison. It was while he was a member of the Viceroy's Council that Ambedkar wrote his 1945 text what Congress and Gandhi have done to the untouchables, in which he attacked Gandhi for his 1932 fast while maintaining that the Pune Pact was a victory for Dalits. By this time, the war had ended. Gandhi and company were now out of prison, and fresh negotiations and elections were around the corner. Ambedkar hoped to improve his party's performance. However, elections in the 1945-46 winter confirmed that the Congress commanded the bulk of the Indian electorate, including a majority of Dalit voters. It won an even larger proportion of Dalit seats than it had in 1937. As independence neared, Gandhi felt freer to be openly radical. On the 1st of August, 1946, a year before independence, he wrote to Vallabhai Patel, who are the people who beat up Harijans, murder them, 
prevent them from using wells, drive them out of schools, and refuse them entry into their houses? They are congressmen, aren't they? It is very necessary to have a clear picture of this. Three months after writing this letter, Gandhi found himself in Noakhali in eastern Bengal, where communal violence had flared up. In January and February 1947, he and his companions, walking from village to village, halted overnight in 47 different East Bengali homes, where their hosts, many of them Dalits, included washermen, fishermen, cobblers, and weavers. In Noakhali, Gandhi told caste Hindu women that if they continued to disown the untouchables, more sorrow would be in store. Hindu village women were given the radical advice noted in an earlier lecture. Invite a Harijan every day to dine with you, said Gandhi, or at least ask the Harijan to, Harijan to touch the food or the water before you consume it. Do penance for your sins. On 24 April 1947, less than four months before independence, Gandhi revealed publicly in Patna in Bihar that for some time he had made it a rule to be present or give his blessings only for a wedding between a Dalit and a non-Dalit. He had been encouraging such marriages in his ashram and in circles close to him from the late 1930s. By 1947, an Ambedkar Congress rapprochement was underway. One of Ambedkar's biographers, Kher Mode, has described a conversation in December 1946 between Ambedkar and Gandhi's British friend, Muriel Lester, who had hosted Gandhi during the London Conference of 1931 when Gandhi and Ambedkar clashed. Lester informed Ambedkar that Gandhi was keen that the Congress should include Ambedkar in the central cabinet and use his learning and leadership. According to Kher Mode, Ambedkar gave an encouraging response, which Lester conveyed to Gandhi, who then asked Nehru and Patel to invite Ambedkar to join Free India's first cabinet. Gandhi's wooing of Ambedkar during the 46-47 winter is corroborated by a public statement he made in East Bengal on 3rd February 1947. Regretting the Muslim League's boycott of the Constituent Assembly, Gandhi added, Dr. Ambedkar was good enough to attend the assembly, unquote. At this point, partition was not yet accepted. The Congress and the League were jockeying for influence. And it was Jinnah, in fact, who had first brought Ambedkar into the Constituent Assembly via the Bengal legislature, where the League held many seats. After the Empire offended Jinnah by inviting the Congress into an interim government, the League boycotted the Constituent Assembly, but Ambedkar did not thereby eliciting Gandhi's praise. Two years earlier, during the 1944 Gandhi-Jinnah talks in Bombay, both leaders had cited Ambedkar's book, Thoughts in, on Pakistan. In Gandhi's assessment, Ambedkar's talents were exceptional. Another Ambedkar associate, Roshan Lal Shastri, has written that he was present in Delhi when Ambedkar received a phone call from Rajkumari Amrit Kaur one of Gandhi's close colleagues, requesting Ambedkar on Gandhi's behalf to join Nehru and Patel in government. Thus, an English woman and an Indian Christian lady from Punjab were among Gandhi's emissaries to Ambedkar. On 26 July 1947, three weeks before independence, Gandhi spoke in a conversation with Dr. Syed Mahmood of Bihar of the folly of rejecting capable individuals merely because they had worked for the empire. They have not become our enemies because they served the British government. Please remember that they are at heart patriots. If we seek the advice of such persons, they will show their genius. At the end of that month, Nehru and Patel extended the invitation to Ambedkar. Accepting it, Ambedkar became India's law minister, chaired the committee that, had draft, that drafted the constitution, and piloted the Constitution Bill into law. The invitation and its acceptance were statesmanlike moves. As a result of Ambedkar's induction into Constitution making, a brilliant and passionate human being, who happened also to be an Indian and a Dalit, piloted a Constitution, assuring equal rights to all in a society that for centuries had called people like him inferior and untouchable 
and an elected constituent assembly where a large majority were caste Hindus welcomed and adopted such a constitution. In the light of earlier history, this was a notable achievement and one that compensated to some extent for the tragedy and price of partition. When, two months after Gandhi's death, Ambedkar married Sharda Kabir, a Brahmin doctor, his first wife, Ramabai, had died in 1935. Vallabhai Patel wrote to Ambedkar, I'm sure if Bapu were alive, he would have given you his blessings. Ambedkar replied, I agree that Bapu, if he had been alive, would have blessed it. They had their differences and clashes. And in 1951, three and a half years after Gandhi's death, Ambedkar re resumed his opposition to the Congress. In 1956, shortly before he died, Ambedkar renounced Hinduism and accepted Buddhism along with hundreds of thousands of followers. Still, history shows that Gandhi and Ambedkar had much in common. Both understood the inevitability of conflict between sections of a diverse and at times sharply separated people. Both agreed, however, that struggle had to be resolute, fearless, passionate, but also peaceful. For killing damaged a struggle's goal. For Ambedkar and also for Gandhi, Dalit solidarity, Dalit education, and the Dalit vote were weapons far superior to the lati or the gun. When used by a vulnerable Dalit, the latter only played into the hands of the better armed enemy. Both realized that the culmination of a struggle for justice was usually, was usually negotiation and a settlement rather than surrender by the foe and complete triumph for one side. Despite harsh experiences, Gandhi and Abedka both knew that the adversary in a struggle, the other, was a human being too, and that justice seldom endured without reconciliation. In June 1947, two months before independence, Gandhi proposed a strong symbolic move appointing a Dalit woman or man as Free India's first president. The proposal was sparked off by the death at the end of May of Chakraya, a talented young Andhra Telugu-speaking Dalit who had been at Gandhi's Sevagram ashram from its inception. Gandhi had nursed high hopes for Chakraya. I feel like crying over his death, he said, but I cannot cry. For whom should I cry and for whom should I refrain from crying? On the 2nd of June, he said at his prayer meeting, the time is fast approaching when India will have to elect the first president of the Republic. I would have proposed the name of Chakraya had he been alive. On the 6th of June, he repeated the thought in conversation with Rajendra Prasad, suggesting at the same time that a few prominent leaders should stay out of the government. If all the leaders join the cabinet, it will be very difficult to maintain contact with the people at large. That is why I suggested even in my prayer speech that a Harijan like Chakraya or a Harijan girl should be made the nation's first president and Jawaharlal should become the prime minister. Similar arrangements can be made in the provinces too. Three weeks later, he returned to the idea in a public utterance. 27 June 1947, if I have my way, the President of the Indian Republic will be a chaste and brave Bhangi girl. Bhangi was the word used for the untouchable community of men and women who cleaned out dirt. If an English girl of 17, continued Gandhi, could become the British Queen and later even the Empress of India, there is no reason why a Bhangi girl of robust love of our people and unimpeachable integrity of character should not become the first President of the Indian Republic. By electing a Harijan girl to that office, we shall show to the world that in India there is no one high and no one low. She should be chaste as Sita, and her eyes should radiate light. We shall all salute her and set a new example before the world. If such a girl of my dreams becomes president, I shall be her servant, and I shall not expect from the government even my upkeep. I shall make Jawaharlal Patel and Rajendra Prasad her ministers, and therefore her servants. Gandhi's radical suggestion of a Dalit head of state was turned down. Nehru, Patel, and company wished to retain Mountbatten as governor general. They thought the subcontinent's princely states would be more likely to choose India over Pakistan 
if the king's cousin continued as governor general. Gandhi agreed to Mountbatten staying on, but he repeated that he wanted an untouchable to head the Indian state before long. In his June 14 speech to the All India Congress Committee of acquiescence to partition, Gandhi said that just as in the Ramayana, the tragedy of Rama's exile was followed by something wonderful, from partition's pain even good might come, provided the so-called untouchables, the other so-called lower castes, the Adivasis, Muslims, Parsis, and Jews, all these groups were separately named by Gandhi, if these groups were treated with respect in the India that remained. On 23 November, after independence, Gandhi spoke publicly in Delhi of the continuing hardship of Dalits in southeastern Punjab in the Haryana state of today. It is a matter of shame for us, said Gandhi, that there are Jats and perhaps Ahirs too. Jats and Ahirs are dominant peasant castes. It is a shame that Jats and perhaps Ahirs too feel that the Harijans are their slaves. They may be given f water and food, but they can get nothing by right. We feel that we can even intimidate a judge if we are brought before him. The result is that the Harijans are ruined. In the afternoon of 30 January 1948, when Congress leaders from East Punjab called on Gandhi at Birla House in New Delhi, Gandhi again remembered the sad keys of the piano that had always compelled him. How are the Harijans, he asked the higher caste leaders. He would be killed two hours later, the man shooting, from, shooting into Gandhi's unprotected chest and his co-conspirators co happened to be highest caste Hindus. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gandhi, for a very informative lecture. Um, we will now take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back for Q&A. Yeah, I saw. I saw. 